So I was thinking, so I usually think about these verses starting Monday or Tuesday, and I just constantly think about it all week. My quiet times, my walks, they're just, it's always, I'm always thinking about it, right? I actually write it late Friday night and then early, all, all day Saturday, but the thinking and the meditating part happens throughout the week, which is tremendously beneficial, by the way. So as I was meditating upon these verses this week, I realized how challenging these verses actually are. They're challenging because they go against how we think life ought to go. These verses are challenging because, for example, one of our natural assumptions in this world as we, live, as we venture on this life, is we think that if someone loves us, then they're not going to make us suffer, right? We think love, one of the main qualities of love is shielding, protecting the other person, the person that you love from suffering. And you parents know what I'm talking about, right? We, we work really hard for, for our children, right? For me, at least. I mean, I, I like in Tron as well. We were, and everyone works really hard so that our children would not know material suffering. Right? And and that's a good thing. And we want to shield our kids from all the sufferings of life because we don't want to see them in pain. Every parent will know what I'm talking about. But these verses teaches us. That God doesn't shield us from pain. He doesn't shield us from trials. Right? James chapter 1, verse 2, consider pure joy when you face many different kinds of trials. God designs and allows the many different trials of life to come your way. He doesn't shield you from pain. If you think about it, it's pretty offensive, isn't it? I remember there was like a former church member, and I was like sharing my struggles that my dad was having with the Korean government and whatnot, right? And I was like sharing the pain that I was going through, my father was going through. And, and the new church member just looked at me and said, I can't believe God is allowing you to go through that. Here you are, Pastor Jay, preaching faithfully, serving faithfully, right? Loving, loving the church, loving your family doing things that are seemingly right. He didn't understand why God would allow such suffering in my life. If God is love, why do we have to suffer? If God is love, why does he design and allow pain in our lives? James 1 teaches us that God's grace is not God's grace and love is not to shield us from suffering. That's not what his grace and love does, do. But his grace and love allow us to go through those trials. And his grace speaks to us when we go through these trials. He allows us to go through trials. And as we go through trials, when we seek his wisdom, he'll speak to us. When we go through those trials... His enduring work will start to work in us so that we will become complete and mature. To God, more important than us living a trouble-free life, which is not possible at all, 
more important than shielding us from hurts. It is to mature us, to make us complete, so for us to start looking and bearing the image of Jesus Christ. That's God's highest priority. Not shielding us from pain, but using the pain to make us complete. To the unbeliever, that is ridiculous. But to the believer, no, there is no other way for us to be mature until, unless we go through sufferings of various kinds. Are you with me? How does God's wisdom work in the midst of trials? I think the way God's wisdom works in the midst of trials is that he may or may not take away the circumstances of your pain. When we are in the pain, when we're in the trials of many different kinds, we pray that God will take the pain away or God will make the circumstances better. But I don't think God works like that in Scripture. He may or may, or may not take away the circumstances. He may or may not make the circumstances better. But I think what is more consistent with Scripture is that rather than changing our circumstances, God's wisdom works, his grace works, in that when he speaks to us in the midst of the trials, he changes the way we look at those circumstances. God's wisdom and grace in the midst of trial is he shifts the way we look at those circumstances. And he may not necessarily take away, change those circumstances. He may or may not. But he will always change the way you look at things. A couple of examples. Paul, he had a thorn in his flesh. There was something that is deeply hurting him. We don't really know what that is. Some say it was his, he had a physical ailment, maybe a chronic headache that visited him. We don't know exactly what, some say it's like his lust or something, or some other people say it's an enemy. Like a, like a, like a, some, say, some say Paul had like a human enemy that was constantly like, bothering him. We don't really know what the thorn is. But there's, a, there's something that always hurt, hurt it, like caused pain, caused Paul pain. And he asked God to take it away, remove it. God said, no. He says he allowed those pains, that pain, so that Paul will remain humble Dependent on the Lord. God says, my grace is sufficient for you in your pain. God didn't take away Paul's thorn. But God changed the way Paul looked at his thorn. That's what Joe Austin and other prosperity gospel preachers don't get. They always promise their congregation that if you're faithful to God, he's going to take away, he's going to make your circumstances better. God may or may not. He certainly didn't do it for Paul. But he will always change the way you look at your circumstances. Another example is this woman, Corrie Ten Boom. She was a Jewish Christian living during the Nazi concentration, right? Nazi occupation in World War II. Her and her sister, Betsy, they were caught by, you know, the German, German army, German soldiers. 
and they were put into a concentration camp. 19, in the 1940s, German concentration camp is perhaps the worst place in the world to be. Agreed? And so her and her sister were, I think, locked in solitary, like locked in some dungeon chamber or something for days. And their prayer was, Lord, help me worship you. And then as they prayed, they opened their eyes and they noticed a spider in the corner of the dungeon spinning its web. And, she, and they began to see how, how artistically beautiful the spider was spinning, his web, spinning its web. That view of the spider web reminded them of God's artistry and beauty in nature. So in that prison cell, in the concentration camp, they started to worship God. Her sister died in the concentration camp. Never made it out alive. For her, God didn't change her circumstance. But her sister, Tori Tambu, worshipped God in the most horrible place in the world. Circumstances may not change. How you look at it. That's how God's wisdom works. James says, rejoice in trials of many different kinds. Like I said last week, he's not only referring to the trials that come as because we're Christians, he's also talking about every trial that we go through as part of living in this fallen world. Some of you, some of you, your trials are your workplace. You're working with people, supervisors, managers, clients that infuriate you. You're working in a labor condition that is less than optimal. Maybe your organization is run by unreasonable people. Not mine, by the way. Very like like you know we run like a tight machine. Great organization to work for, right? I recommend it. But some of us. We're not blessed with that. We're not blessed like me. Right? Horrible. Some of you are in very difficult marriages. It's hard. What's the rate of, like, I think, like, COVID is causing divorce rate to skyrocket or something, right? When you're actually living with someone, it's hard. Some of you have physical ailments. Like, my trial last week was my teeth. Nothing wrong with my teeth. I had to get my teeth cleaned, and I was scared to death to get my teeth cleaned. Right? And it was a trial. Don't laugh at me, but it was still a trial for me. God allows every circumstance, every trial to come your way. He may or not may not take away those, change those circumstances. He may or may not change your boss. He may or may not change your client. He may or may not give you a new job. But changes in circumstances does not matter as much as our view of change, as, as much as our view of, of, of our shifting view of those circumstances. He always shifts our view when we ask him for wisdom. He really does that. And maybe that's what you and I need to ask for. Rather than asking it to make it better, 
ask, what's the wisdom that I need? How should I view this problem? And maybe those problems will not get resolved in a day or two. Maybe some of you, like Paul, have to live with that problem, with that thorn, for the entirety of your life. That's depressing. Even if you have to live with that thorn for the entirety of your life, he will still give you wisdom step by step if you ask for it in faith. Everyone, uh, comprende? That's why I'm, what I just said doesn't make me a prosperity preacher. Prosperity preachers will say, he'll all make it better, right? He'll all make it better. God, God's favor is waiting upon you. He, it is, but God's favor is the favor of wisdom. It is these view of shifting view of circumstances that Paul is telling the poor brothers and the rich brothers in the church. In the early church, James is writing this letter, the Jewish Christians in the Roman Empire, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And you have to remember, right, that this is the early church. There weren't that many Christians. So individual churches were fairly small. Corinth, the church in Corinth was considered a megachurch. Corinth was one of the first megachurches, did you know that? How many people actually met in Corinth? 40 to, 40 to 100. 40 to 100 churches. People attending 40 to 100, a church consisting of 40 to 100 people were, were considered megachurches back then. So embrace, we're a megachurch in the, in the new, new early church standards. Be proud of the fact that you're a member of Embrace. Be part of a megachurch. So it's a very, so these churches are very intimate in gathering. By the way, you know what the average church size in America before COVID was? What's the medium size of a church in America before COVID? 70, 70. An average American church has 70 people gathering regularly. If that's the median now, how small do you think the median was when, it, when, they, when we first started? 20 people, 10 people in a congregation. Sounds wonderful, by the way, in my opinion. Anyway, right? In the small congregation, there were those who were incredibly rich, and there are those who were incredibly poor. Okay? They weren't from a homogenous background. Some people were crazy rich. Louis Vuitton, Birkin bag carrying rich. Others had to scrape by to get $5 Happy Meals from McDonald's. All belonged to the same church of 20. Imagine a small group. Imagine you're part of a small group where your small group leader is really rich and you're really poor. How does that work? What is the temptation? The temptation is the poor people, when they look at the rich members of our church, they can, they can easily feel resentful, right? They can, be, they can feel resentful against God. They can say, look, God, 
We're both Christians, part of the same church. But why is that guy rich, and why am I poor? You could easily feel resent, they could easily feel resentment towards God. Because it seems unfair. Right? That's one of the narratives driving modern culture, right? Income inequality. Disparities in income. It just seems unfair. Why the rich are rich and I am poor. So they can get bitter towards God. They can get bitter towards a rich person. What does he got that I got? What does she have that I don't have? can get easily resentful. Some people tell me that when they see vacation pictures of their friends that they took in Facebook pre-COVID, when their friends upload all these beautiful vacation shots in luxury locations like Costa Rica, Costa Rica luxurious, I don't know, I've never been. They start resenting those people. But they seem to have what they don't have. Money and time. Or these poor people can start easily become resentful of themselves. Why am I such a loser? Why am I not smart enough, ambitious enough? Why do I lack the entrepreneurial spirit to become rich? Poor people can be, can be resentful. Rich people have the opposite problem. Rich people think they're above everyone. I see this in a lot of investment bankers, by the way. If they're successful in one area, in making money, a lot of these rich people that I know think that they're also wise in all the other areas of life. It's weird, AKA Donald Trump, right? Like, he made billions, gazillion dollars, right? And that, he thinks that gives him the ability to be right about all the other issues of life. And there are people, there are a lot of people like that. Find success in one area, become rich in one area, and they think they're above everyone, that they're always right. So whether you're rich or poor, they are tempted to base their identity in their circumstances. If you're poor, you feel like you're a zero. You're invisible in society. Your society don't care about you. If you're rich, you think everyone cares about you because you're rich. James is saying to both parties, get a grip. Do not let your circumstances define you. What needs to define them? They need to see. They need to truly understand. They need to make a distinction between eternal treasures and temporary treasures. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, James said. The lowly brothers are the brother who are poor. He says the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. But exaltation means high position. He says the lowly brother should not base their understanding of who they are based upon their economic circumstance, but they should take pride in the high position that they occupy in the kingdom of God. What God does is this. He takes the low things of the world 
And he makes those lowly things his people. When he does, he lifts them up and he exalts them. Being a Christian means that when you're united with Christ, you become the heirs of the new kingdom and the new earth. In Christ, we are exalted above everything in creation. We occupy a high position in Christ. Because in Christ, we become sons of God. James is saying, the reality of who you are is not the temporary circumstances that define you here. But the true reality of who you are is the eternal position that you have in God where God exalts you. You are in an incredibly high position. I could be very careful of the next thing that I say, right? Look, I had the fortune of being a child of a man, who, son of a man, who occupied a very high position in the Korean government. And the benefit of being a child of a, such a man is I get to see the benefits of what a high position gets. Once again, it's not my father who himself, he's not born a prince, but my father's position exalted him to a certain position. And I, and I, and I, and I was raised seeing what that exalted position looked like. I remember we went to like a resort in Thailand. Thailand? Because my father was an ambassador to one of those Southeast Asian countries. So when my father was an ambassador to one of those Southeast Asian countries, like I visited my dad, and he took me to a resort in Thailand, I think, right? To vacation. I don't know why, but the manager knew that my dad was coming. And so the manager, every time they looked at my dad, he would say, you, your ex, he would address my dad as your excellency. That was weird. Yeah, that's only for like regal terms, right? So the manager would always continually like come after my dad and says, Your Excellency, Your Excellency, Your Excellency. That was bizarre. Right? So I'm look, I'm observing that. And I go, wow, that's what high position, that's what being in a high position, the benefits, I guess, of being in a high position. My father has left that position, so he, he's no longer in that exalted position. But I get to experience what, what, what being exalted looks like in this world. His, my dad's exaltation lasted only a few years, right? But I get a glimpse of what an exalted position looks like. In Christ, we become the most excellent in creation. We are exalted above everything in creation. That's the eternal, objective reality of who we are. James is saying, let not your economic circumstance de like, you know, define you. Take pride in your high position as a sons of God. The way the poor get over, take, get over the fact of their poverty, that they're poor, and take pride in who they are, 
grasp who they are in Christ. We believe that we are more than this world. The difference between a spiritual person and a natural person is we believe that our lives are more than this temporal reality that we're living in. We have an expanded view of reality. The natural person only knows of this reality. They don't see anything. They don't know anything else above this reality. That's the, difference between, that's, that's the way that you know whether you're a Christian or not. Do you know that your life is more than what happens to you in this life? That this life is only a blimp compared to the eternal kingdom that is coming? Unbelievers think that this 70 years of your life here, that's all you have. And unbelievers try to cram in everything in this life. They try to cram in all the love, all the meaning, all the justice, Everything. They try to cram everything in in the 70 years of their lives here, which is foolish because there's no way that they'll realize everything they want to realize within the 70 years of existence. You know how short 70 years is? For those of you who are old, remember the last cicada invasion that we had 21 years ago, 20 years ago? John knows what I'm talking about. 20 years ago, right? Cicadas were like, were like dying all over the place. So like you couldn't step a ground without cicadas, without fronting in a cicada. That was 20 years ago. Now I think cicada season's coming back. And my wife and I were talking. That was last time we saw a cicada was 20 years ago. Now they're coming back. Guys, life is so short in this world. The natural person tries to cram in everything into the 70 years that they're living here, which is utterly foolish. For us, life is above, true life is above and beyond the temporal experience. That is why James is telling his poor brother, don't let this temporary stuff define you. My dear brothers and sisters, don't let the temporary stuff. Maybe you didn't go to Harvard, right? And maybe you're not this professional person that your parents want you to be. And maybe, not, maybe you're not married to the perfect person. And maybe you're not married at all. Maybe you don't have the society things that you ought to have. James is saying, Christian, get a grip. Do not let these temporal things define who you are. Your position and my position is an exalted position in God and in his kingdom. Do you understand? And that pride is the way you need to carry yourself in this life. To the rich, verse 10, James is saying, the rich should boast in his humiliation. What does the word humiliation mean? Does, does he mean people should make humiliate the rich people for being rich? No. The word humiliation is brought low. It means to, bring, to, be, to be brought low. He's basically saying to the rich people, rich people, 
Get a grip on the reality of who you are. Even though your riches, you may think and others may think your riches makes you an exalted person, you should come down from that misconception. Your riches doesn't make you an exalted person. In fact, your riches will fade away. Right? Verse 10, because, because like a flower of the grass, the rich person will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flowers fall, its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. He's basically saying, hey, rich Christian, your riches are like flowers, like, like flowers on the grass field. Flowers in the grass field are beautiful. Aren't they beautiful? Flowers are beautiful. I didn't get flowers for my wife today. Tell me which flowers I should get for my wife. Flowers are wonderfully beautiful. And being rich, you get a lot of beautiful things, right? If you're rich, you can afford the Birkin bag. I don't know why I'm touching the Birkin bag these days. You can afford, you know, the, the, the Maybach or something. You can afford the Maseratis, and you can afford the, the you know, the whatever car that you want. When you're rich, you get to buy beautiful things, right? But he's saying, rich people. The beautiful things that you, the riches bring you, they're like a momentary flower in the field. When the sun rises, and the sun and the heat of the sun, it will scorch the flower, and it's going to wither and die. So too will your riches be. Do not let the beautiful riches define your identity, your, your circumstances. Like the poor person, exalt, be, be encouraged. No, not encourage. Define yourself based upon the high position that you occupy in Jesus Christ. My friends, this morning, do you know the high position that you have in Christ? Do you know that you are excellent above all creation? Or is your Identity tied to your circumstances. Oh, I am not this. Oh, I am not that. I should have been this. I should have been that. Is that you? Or are you saying, yeah, it didn't happen. These things didn't happen to me. But it doesn't matter because I'm exalted. I'm in an exalted position in Christ. Is that real? Oh, is that exaltation? Is your position in Christ real to you, brothers and sisters? things, yes, good for you. Not. You need to add God, God, you need to ask God for wisdom to make you believe and understand your exact position in Christ. You need to pray for that wisdom. God doesn't change the poor people's circumstances. The lowly brothers, perhaps they died poor. Perhaps they were never rich. But James doesn't pity them. That's what one of the commentaries I was reading said. James didn't pity the poor people. He's calling the rich people to help the poor brothers, and that's true. But James didn't pity the poor people because James knew that they were, a exalt, they were in an exalted position in God. That's the wisdom that you and I need. Not only does God need to change the way we look at our circumstances. Once again, verse 12. 
He needs to change the way we look at our trial. Verse 2, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. When he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Verse 12, James is teaching the brothers and sisters, there is a crown of life waiting for the believer. What is the crown of life? Another way to translate it is, what, another way to translate crown of life is life which is the crown. So there is this life, an eternal life waiting for those who love God. He says God gives this crown of life to those who love God. What is this life that Paul ta- James talks about here? He means eternal life. In eternal life, you can't just think about as like the length of, of the life. Eternal life, we, when we think of eternal life, we only think about it in terms of lasting forever, but that's not the biblical view of eternal life. Eternal life is the fullness of life. Complete life. Life as what is meant to be. Right? This fullness of life. Life what is meant to be. And an example that I can give you is, have you tried something, have you tried something like really good food? Right? Like really good coffee that we're going to drink today, for those of us who are here. For those of you who are not, too bad, so sad. Very loving, Pastor Ian. But when you consume something that is truly magnificent, I remember going to a French restaurant, and I ordered, it was like, I don't know, some form of French food. You eat it. It's not just like regular lamen that you eat, right? There's a richness, a flavor, the texture, the temperature. Like really good beef. You know, you know what I mean, guys? Really good beef. If you taste it, it's different from Outback Steakhouse beef, right? There is this juiciness, this richness of flavor that, that fills your mouth and your palate. You guys know what I'm talking about? That's the vision of fullness. You get a full flavor of food. That's comparison to the fullness of life that God gives. The life that God gives, the eternal life that God gives, Full life. The love that you're yearning for all your life. When when you're given eternal life, that true love will fill your existence. The beauty that you long for, that you appreciated all your life, it's going to be, it's going to fill you. The truth and the justice and the righteousness that you are looking for in this world, the community that you're looking for in this world, the purpose and meaning, the acceptance that you're looking for in this world, it's going to be all given to us in the fullness of life. You're going to experience it fully, what it means to live life. Am I conveying what I try to convey here? Eternal life is not just the fact that you live forever. No, 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 no. You get to experience what life truly is. 
You get to see glimpses of that in this world when you're a Christian. You do. But you're going to get full life like that when you go before the Lord. This life isn't for everyone, Paul says. Fullness of life, the crown of life, will only be given to those who love God. How does one love God? One, you begin to love God by understanding that God first loved you. You get to love God by understanding that God sent his only son to die for you, to forgive your sins, and to make you clean. When you truly understand the gospel, the magnificence of the gospel, you will love God. For those who love God, are, in other words, for those who love God means those who are truly converted by the gospel. And to them, God will give them fullness of life in the new kingdom. Are we with me? Then, okay, that's fair enough. But then James talks about, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. It seems as if James is saying, the fullness of life will only be given to those who who endure different trials. He seemed to suggest that if you endure all the trials that God gives you in this life, then as a reward, he will give you the crown of life. It seems to suggest that James is saying the crown of life is only given to those who earn it, and you earn it by successfully going through different trials of life. Somehow, he thinks, it's easy to construe that James is saying, you have to earn the crown of life by going through trial. That's not what James is saying. Once again, James is saying in verse 12, crown of life is given, to those, is given by God to those who love him, and you can only love God by embracing the gospel, and that's true. Then where do trials come in? The secret is, this part of the verse where he says, for when he stood the test. So what James is saying is this. The way you know that you love God, which will result in you getting the crown of life, the way you know that you truly love God and so that you wouldn't get the crown, is if you survive, if you endure the different tests of life. Different trials, trials of many different kinds, are all a test to reveal what you genuinely believe. How do you know whether you genuinely love God or not? James is saying, if you faithfully endure the trials God has given you, then you know, that's the evidence that you know you love God. Trials are not the means in which you gain the crown of life. No, trials are a test to reveal whether you love God to, so that you will discern whether you, can, you will actually receive the crown of life. Trials of every different kind that you face are used to reveal to you and to God whether you truly love him or not. We think that we, be, we become Christians just by accepting Christ when we're young. Maybe that's true. 
but whether, but to, to see whether the confession you made in Jesus' camp when you were 14, to know whether that confession was true or not, you need to go through different trials. You understand? Let's say 14 years old, you go to Jesus' camp, and you say, someone won't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, and you raise your hand. That's all good and fine. But the way you know whether that confession was true is, if, is how you endure the trials. Enduring the trials is the evidence of whether you're saved. Does it make clear? Am I clear? What does the word endurance mean? Endurance means not giving up. I love running. I really do. I'm beginning to love running more these days. But the only way that you get good at running, right, the only way you develop endurance strength is you've got to fight through the pain, right? Like if you go to a Korean meat buffet, the way you can eat, much, the way you, the way you can eat more is you've got to just endure the, you've got to push through the pain of being full, right? To get to the meat sweats, you need to endure the pain and just go there, right? Endurance is built. We don't give up. The way you know that you love God is if you endure the trial. Various trials, all sorts of trials. You're gonna get we're facing trials every day. Big trials, small trials, medium-sized trials, 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 trials. All the trials. Every single one of them. Test or test to see whether you truly believe. In the midst of those trials, listen, God will be gracious to you. If you truly belong to him, if you truly belong to God, in the midst of those trials, you will ask him for wisdom, and he's going to give you wisdom, and you're going to endure those trials. God's enduring work will be with you every single step of the trial. And that's the good news. Guys, if you're suffering right now, the good news is he's going to speak to you in those trials. That's the good news. And as he speaks to you in those trials, you have the ability to endure those trials. But if you decide not to endure those trials and just give up, not seek God's wisdom, just give up, that's evidence that you really don't know him and love him. Problems at church? Let's say your trial right now is something happening in our church. I don't know what it is, but maybe it is. Look, you have other options. You know how many churches are there in the stretch of this, like, Ox Road? There's a huge one down the road. I don't think there's any churches that serve better coffee than we do. We got that going for us. But trust me when I say there are better, not better options, there are other options. If the church doesn't make you satisfy whatever def definition you think the church ought to be, then clearly you have options to leave. If you don't like your spouse, it's going to hurt, but hey, you know, we live in America. More than 50% of people are getting divorced. You have the option to divorce your spouse if it's hard, Right? Life is short. Why do you subject yourself to pain? 
If you don't like your job, look, you can certainly quit. But if you quit your problem, when the going gets tough, and if you don't let God minister to you in the midst of those problems, what does that say about your faith? Maybe God is making you purpose. God is purpose. No, I know. God is purposely making you, placing you in uncomfortable situations right now. He really is. So that you can endure those trials with his wisdom, with his grace. That's the purpose. You give up. What does that say about your faith in Christ? Ask God for wisdom in the midst of those trials. Consistently, daily. And I promise you, he's going to give it. So the way we, we need wisdom, the way to look at our trials of life. The, the unreasonable boss, the unreasonable family member, your health issues. Your unemployment, every single one of it, are tests to show whether you truly believe or not. Those are the purpose of trial. Sounds harsh, but that's what James is saying. Before we end, not only do we have to change the way we look at our circumstances, the way we look at our trials, we have to change the way we look at evil. We're going, to, we're going to cover more tomorrow. It's almost over. We're, we're going to teach more about this in two weeks because I'm, I'm off next week. But in two weeks, we're going to talk about evil. One of the ways that God has called us, God has called the Christian to live this world is to fight evil. All of us are, called, are to be Batman, right? We're, we're supposed to fight corruption and evil, right? All of us are called to be superheroes in our lives by fighting evil. And one of the chief callings of a Christian is to fight evil. We need to change. We need to change our understanding of where evil comes from. Some people think God, like that's what James is talking about here. Some people think it's God who's tempting them to do evil, which is foolishness. Some people think it's my parents. The source of my evil is my parents. I am a good human being, but my parents messed me up. Therefore, I do these evil things. Some people think. The source of my evil is the white people patriarchy. It's the white people in power that caused, caused the society evil. Right? I saw like a, like a talk show clip where one minority group was attacking another minority group. And these talk show experts, experts are saying the reason why this minority group is attacking this minority group is because of the white man. I go, what? The white man is causing this minority group to fight against the other. Man, the white man is a puppet master, evidently, of everything. That's what a lot of your professors, a lot of the professors in this world is believing. You know what I mean? But James is teaching us. The source of evil in your life, of which you need to fight, comes from your desires. It is your desires, good desires, that gone amok. That's the source of evil in your life. That's the source of evil in the world. 
with Christ. You need, he needs to reorganize your appetite. That's how you fight evil desires. That we're going to talk about more in two weeks. Wisdom changes the way you look at your circumstances. Wisdom changes the way you look at your trials. Wisdom changes the way you look at evil. You constantly need the wisdom of God to change your minds about all things. So this week, do not close your ears to God. Believe that he exists. Believe that he will talk to you. Believe that what he says is true. Listen to him. Rely upon him rather than the voices of your head. Let us pray.